You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Amen. Uh, well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, moms, we do want you to know that we love you. We appreciate you. We would not be the same without you. So, uh, and uh, for all you kids that got dressed up special more than you normally do this morning, thank you. Uh, your mom sure do appreciate that as well. Uh, hey, I also want to add my invitation to you for Discover Bethel. We would love for you to join us this Wednesday night. Um, whether you've been here uh, as your first Sunday or you've been here for years, if you've never attended a Discover Bethel, we'd love to see you. We just need you to sign up uh, today. And so please do that so we can get a good head count. Now, let's open our Bibles. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And y'all, we are wrapping up our, our walk through these two Thessalonian letters. And we're going to wrap it up today. There's an old story goes, an old priest was walking through an old English village and he came across three bricklayers. So he stopped at the first bricklayer and he said, sir, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just laying bricks to make a paycheck. The priest said, bless you, and he kept walking. He walked a little farther. He came to the second bricklayer. He said, sir, what are you doing? He said, you know, I'm working to make the best brick wall that I can. The priest said, bless you, and walked on down a little farther until he came to the third bricklayer. And he got to the third bricklayer. He asked the same question, sir, what are you doing? And with a gleam in his eye, that bricklayer said, I'm constructing a cathedral to our God. And the priest just looked at that man and said, you are already blessed. And he kept walking. Three men doing the same work, but with very different meaning, isn't it? You know, the theme throughout both, really both of these Thessalonian letters has been Christ's return. That is our hope today. That is our hope in hard times is the return of Christ. But there's kind of been this question lingering underneath the surface. He's alluded to it here and there, but he's going to address it head on. And it's this. Okay. If our hope is in Jesus' return, then does anything we do right now matter? I mean, is any of this important? In fact, that's what was happen happening in this church in Thessalonians. So some of the Thessalonians, they began thinking, you know what? All three of those bricklayers are wasting their time. None of them understand. I mean, it, this is all silly. It doesn't matter. In fact, Jesus, he's coming back any second. I mean, any second. And so they're, they're wasting their time. And Paul... Paul writes to them and says, no, no. He writes to them and tells them, be like that third bricklayer. What you do here and now, it matters massively. See, our, our lives right now, how we live today, right now, they're like a cathedral or like a painting or like a novel. They tell a story. But it's not a story about us. And so this is our big idea for today. How we live tells a story about who we wait for. How we live tells a story about who we wait for. So with that in mind, let's open our Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So, okay, Stop there. Here in this first verse, he's presenting the problem, okay? And the problem is 
some people were using their theology to justify bad behavior. So let me just give you a little hint. If your theology is leading to bad behavior, that means you have bad theology or at least incomplete theology. We'll see that here in a second. And so this bad behavior, it was really doing two things in the church. It was causing disruption and disunity in the church, and it was also presenting a false witness to the world. So they had some of these people, they kind of zeroed in, and just all they focused on was this teaching of Christ's return, and they were convinced he's returning any second. And so if he's returning any second, I'm going to quit my job. That's a waste of time. I don't need to show up at work today. And so you can imagine, they, in the morning, they'd go out in their front yard while everybody else is getting in their car, going to work. They're just kicked back on the tailgate, you know, drinking a cold one, throwing around the football, kind of laughing at the people as they go to work. What a sucker! Ha! Man, when Jesus comes back at noon, they're going to be sorry they went to work today. And then, then, like at the end of the day, everybody's coming back home from work, so they wake up from their nap, they go outside again just to mock people coming back home from work. You know, they're tired. They're up, most of them are doing manual labor. And they're like, oh, man, I slept all day. Why did you have to go to work? But then another hour or two goes by, and they get a rumbly in their tummy. And they look, and there's no food in the cupboard. So then now they're going to that same neighbor's house around dinner time. What you cooking in there? Oh, that sure does smell good. Boy, I sure am hungry. Can I, can I come? Can I come join you for dinner? And this has been going on for some time now. And so it has become awkward. It has become disruptive. Because you know, the, the other people in the church, they're saying, hey, you know what? We're Christians. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to be generous. You know, so I guess, I guess we got to take what little food we have that we work for and give it to these people that are refusing to work. And so the, the idol, they are holding everyone else hostage by their bad behavior. That's what ha- what's happening in this church. And what's worse, not only are they, you know, taking everyone's food that they all work for, they're, they're prideful in their bad theology. And so, you know, they're sitting at the dinner table in between bites, they're gossiping about everybody else, and they're, they're talking about how smart they are and, and how everyone else is getting it all wrong, and they're getting it all right. And so in verse 11... Man, this is great. Paul, he says, they're not busy, they're busy bodies. And so it's not like they're doing nothing. They're actually quite active. They're actually doing a lot. But they're just being destructive instead of productive. They're expending all of their energy creating drama. They are taking instead of giving. Now, we got to add some qualifications to this situation because we don't want to apply this to situations it doesn't apply to. So he's talking about people who won't work. He is not talking about people who cannot work. This is a choice that's going on on here. And so it's not for the person who wants to work maybe but can't find work. And y'all, he's not talking about people who are just going through a difficult season. Listen, Paul acknowledges over and over again, and we know Life is hard. We live in a broken and fallen world where sometimes people, despite their best intentions and their best efforts, they get hit with a series of difficult events that they cannot support themselves in. They cannot pull themselves out of. He's not talking about that. Nor is he just talking about earning a paycheck or maybe even enough of a paycheck. So 
It's Mother's Day, okay? We all know some of the hardest working people we know don't get paid for the work that they do. He's not talking about that. Or even about people who, man, we all know people who are the hardest working people we know who maybe don't make very much money and life is expenses, expensive and they get other expenses. He's not talking about that either. It's, it's not about how much money you're bringing in. See, this is the teaching of the scripture from beginning to end. In situations where people are willing to work, but they need help, y'all, it is the privilege it is the high calling of the church to step in and help. We get to do that. It's not a have to. And so the ministry of, we call it benevolence, it is one of the most beautiful things that the church does. Why? Because how we live tells a story about who we wait for. And we wait for a generous God who empties himself for others. And so when we do that, when we model that, when Christians work hard and use those benefits, not to, for my own benefit or to grow my own kingdom, but to serve and to bless others, listen, that tells a story to the watching world. And that is what makes this situation so bad. This idleness is exploiting God's design for generosity. It's tarnishing this beautiful thing that the church gets to do. So, Paul steps in and he gives a command here. In your translation, it probably says that word command. Y'all, this is unusual for Paul. Paul is not usually one just issuing edicts and commands left and right. In fact, of all the times Paul uses this word, in all of his writings, a third of them are in this chapter right here. Paul means business. And he says it's a command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says Jesus is commanding this, okay? But notice this first one here, this command, the command isn't for the idol. The command is for everyone else. He says, keep away from them. I command you to keep away from them. Now, this word means exactly what you think it means. It means avoid. It means stand aloof. It means keep at arm's length. When they come knocking on, at your door on dinner time, do not let them in. Now, I know this is the warm, fuzzy sermon we all want on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. <laughs> Again, we got to pay attention to what's not happening. They're not kicked out of the church. They are not treated as enemies or unbelievers. This is not passive-aggressive, okay? They are to know full well why they are being avoided. So some of you here are starting to think, oh, man, starting to think maybe this is you and starting to read into things people have said and done. No, 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 that's not what's happening here. If this was you, you would know it. We would tell you overtly, okay? And keep in mind, Paul has addressed this issue repeatedly with the offender. So we'll read in a second, verse 10, he repeats a command that he had given them when he was in Thessalonica. So we think that was about a year ago. We're not for sure. There's a few months, give or take, but we think about a year ago, he told them, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so for a year now, that command has been ignored. And so these people, they're in overt rebellion. They know what they're supposed to do. They've been warned they're not doing it. And so Paul says, listen, if they are too proud and too stubborn to listen to teaching, maybe they will listen to their stomachs. So we got to understand a little bit about their culture difference in ours because, y'all, they didn't have refrigerators, Okay. 
They didn't have a bunch of food in the fridge that they could just go to and hang on for a little while until Jesus comes back. Also, many of us, myself, chief among us, have uh, what we'll call reserve nutrients stored up, okay? They didn't have that. So back then, y'all, they ate to survive, not to indulge. If they missed a meal or two, it only took a meal or two before severe hunger pains would have set in. And so they say back in those days, you, went, you could go from fed to dead of hunger really in just a few days. So when Paul says, listen, don't, don't feed them, he's saying pretty soon a physical reality will send a message to their brain about their bad theology. They're, they're refusing to hear and listen to otherwise. And you know, isn't it true? And there's just some people that you can tell them that stove is hot a hundred times, but they will not believe you until they actually touch the stove themselves. Many of you mamas have had to put up with kids like this. Some people have to have the physical experience, physical consequences to believe the truth. But what, here's what Paul is saying here. Here's what Paul is saying. But it's worth it. It's worth it to correct bad theology. It is worth it if it leads them to repentance, if it restores relationships, if it corrects the story they are telling about who they wait for. See, how we live, men and women, it is a big deal. Paul is showing it's a big deal by his refusal to let this bad behavior continue. If it is threatening the well-being of the body of Christ, it must be addressed. Because what kind of story is this telling about who we wait for? Is this what God is like? Is this what his people are like? No. So Paul refuses to let it continue. Let's continue in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul reminds them of the rich tradition our faith has about work. Christianity has a theology of work. And now these idols, they were kind of self-proclaimed armchair theologians. You know, I'm more enlightened than you guys. I get it. Y'all don't get it. But they were neglecting this theology of work. So Paul points to his past teaching. He had been there. He had taught among them. We have some of this past teaching in the first letter to the Thessalonians. So you can go read 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. He says, he tells them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he tells them to work with their hands. Notice he's concerned with the witness to the outsiders, the story that we're telling, the outside world. He says again, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So he tells them, admonish the idle people in your congregation. See, your choice sometimes for how you're living and interacting with others, it's not just a private matter. The church is made to tell a story together. You cannot tell a story by definition of love, of peace as a Lone Ranger. 
by definition, our only, only our interactions with each other can tell the full story about who God is. But Paul, this isn't new with Paul. He's not making this up. This theology of work, it goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of creation and the scriptures. Even before then, you know God, God is a worker. That's how he's portrayed in the scriptures. 34 times in the book of Psalms, the psalmist praise God for being a worker, praises him for the work that he does. We're told, we're commanded to work. So Exodus 20, you know, you've probably heard this, six days shall you work, the seventh shall you rest. Now we tend to emphasize the rest, you know, but six of those days we're commanded to work. Why? Because that's what God did. He worked for six days. That's what he's like. And so we model that. You know, a lot of people tend to think work is kind of a result of the fall. You know, if Adam and Eve never sinned, there wouldn't be work, but that's not true. Go read Genesis 1. So before sin ever entered the, entered the world, we're told God created man in his image. Well, what does that mean? That we're in his image. It means a lot of things, but from the context, it means one thing in particular. So right after that, right after it says we are made in his image, we're given a command. Have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So to be made in God's image is to create, is to exercise dominion, is to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue. These are all other words for work. This is what we do to be made in his image because that's what God does. We are in his image. And so the way we live tells a story about who we are waiting for. He's a creator. He's a worker. Paul also points to himself. So he didn't just teach this stuff. He lived it. He says, I gave you an example to follow. He used the word that we get for mimic. I gave you something to mimic and repeat. He says it wasn't easy. He uses the words toil and labor. Now, y'all, those are the result of the fall. That is when work becomes hard and, and the, the world doesn't cooperate with us. It, it was very hard on him, but he did it. He said, I made sure I didn't take and exploit, but I gave. I wanted to bless, not be a burden. I let my life tell the right story about who we're all waiting for. I think it's helpful, too, that we appreciate how countercultural this was. So in the Greek world, they really looked down on work, especially manual labor. And so the real, you know, the wealthy, the sophisticated, they didn't get their hands dirty. They had slaves and they had servants for that. And it was also uh, just a part of their worldview. So they had a Gnostic worldview, which said physical is bad, spiritual is good. And so all that physical work, that, that's for the bottom. That's for the dregs of society. That's not that's not real enlightened. Now, the sophisticated, enlightened people, they worked in areas like philosophy. They worked in ideas and in the spiritual realm. And so back then, you know who the attractive people were back then? They were the chubby, pale-skinned people. What a time to be alive, right? If I had a time machine, I could go be on the cover of Greek GQ or something. <laughs> because that was seen as, oh, you, you don't have to do manual labor. You're, you must be wealthy. You must be enlightened. You must be sophisticated. Now, isn't this ironic? These, these kind of armchair theologians, they're there thinking they understand more about Jesus' return than everyone else, and they, they get it more. All they were doing is repeating the idolatry of their society, the worldview of their culture. That's all they're doing. 
their idleness came from idolatry, not from the Bible. And so their idleness is telling the wrong story about who they are waiting for. They are telling the culture's story, not the Bible story. So Paul, he gets these reports that this problem has continued. His vi- when he was with them, it didn't change. His first letter didn't change it. It is continuing, and he's not going to let it go. He draws a line in the sand. He says this cannot continue. He sees it as a threat to the church. He continues verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he repeats the problem, idleness. He repeats a command. Again, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, work, earn your own living. You know, this word idleness, it's very fitting for what for what's happening in here and what it's causing, the, the type of destruction it's causing. The word actually means disorder or disarray. It can mean messy. It, it's a picture of something disordered. There's a painting called Behold the Man, painted in the 1930s by a Spanish painter named Elias Garcia Martinez. There it is. It's depicting Jesus with a crown of thorns that hangs in a church in Borgia, Spain. Now, as you can see, you know, this painting, it has started to crack. It started to fade. It needed a little touch-up. So the church commissioned it to be restored. And, y'all, the the results were less than ideal. I think we have what the restoration ended up looking like. Not exactly a home run, is it? Can we show one and then the other? So this was the original, and this is the restoration. Y'all. This picture got famous because it, they did such a terrible job restoring it. They distorted it. They made a mess of the original picture. Paul is saying that's what their idleness is doing to the picture of the church. They were supposed to say to the world, this church is supposed to say to the world, hey, you want to know what Christ is like? Watch our work. Watch our love. Watch the way we love and serve one another. Watch our relationships. That'll tell you what God is like. Instead, the picture they are painting, it looks disordered, it looks in disarray, it looks messy because they refuse to work. So he repeats the command. And y'all, it's not a suggestion. This is like a military general issuing an order. He wants the church to be diligent about not supporting, not enabling behavior that is destructive in the church that destroys the unity of the church, that ruins the witness of the church. This is important. But it's important because there's a purpose. See, the goal here isn't just, you know, get rid of difficult people. Run off those who are hard to love. Remember, remember, how we live tells a story about who we wait for. And we wait for a God who redeems We wait for the father who sprints to the end of that driveway the second his prodigal son returns. So let's keep reading. Verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, all church discipline... Every time it's talked about, it has the same goal, restoration. 
Restoration is always the goal of church discipline. So here he encourages the church. He says, hey, don't grow weary. It's like he knows that this is a burden to those who have to step into it. It is not a quick fix. So he says, do not get discouraged. Stay the course. It will be worth it. What you're doing is a good thing. He says again to the offenders, obey. Obey, you have to do this. Again, the repeated correction has been ignored. So at this point, they are in rebellion against the Lord, against the scriptures, against the leadership of the church, and against their own brothers and sisters in Christ. So he is making sure this rebellion doesn't get to win. They don't get to continue being disruptive or destructive. And so he, said, he tells them, hey, if they won't change, write them down. Write their names down. Put them on a list. Take note of that person. And so again, we see this isn't secretive. This isn't gossip about some people. This is done in the light. But there's a goal. Restored relationships. So notice, and maybe you've noticed so far, he calls them here. He's called, what has he called them several times? Brothers. He say brothers and sisters. The offenders remain brothers. Tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us, listen, this instruction isn't for how we deal with the outside world. In fact, how we're supposed to deal with the outside world is often the exact opposite. With the outside world, with sinners, with those who do not claim faith, we are supposed to willingly and joyfully suffer amidst the sins of the world. Now, why would someone do that? Because how we live tells a story about who we wait for. And though he was God, he became man and took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to even death on a cross. And so we model that at times. We willingly suffer. It also tells us this is not for you to enact on an individual basis, okay? This isn't for you to just decide, I don't like that person, so I'm going to avoid them. No, no, no. This is, this is done collectively through the church leadership and membership. Under the covering of the church leadership, according to the scriptures, after repeated attempts to deal with the issue. I think Paul's trying to tell us something else, though. Over and over again, he reminds them, your brothers, your brothers, he's not an enemy, he's a brother. He's reminding us that the church is like a family. It is a family. And like a family, love is the foundation. Love is the motivation for everything we do, including church discipline. We're not motivated by retribution or revenge. We're not just trying to win an argument. Love. Love, love is seeking another person's highest possible good. The goal for the idol is their highest possible good. And as soon as they repent, the expectation is they will receive nothing but mercy and grace. The expectation is the church will get to tell the story of the father who sprints down the driveway when his son returns. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, I, re I read that. And I'm like, is this here by accident? It reads like a complete oxymoron. Because at the end of 14, he says, have nothing to do with them. And then in verse 15, he says, he is not an enemy. He's not an enemy. He's a brother. Now, our culture has lost all ability to do this. I mean, in, in our world today, to disagree with someone is to be their enemy. To disagree is to hate. And so our world almost cannot fathom loving someone and disagreeing with them. 
But I thought about today, there are some people who show us how to do this. You know who shows us how to do this? Mothers. Mothers. Mothers will correct. They will discipline. They will tell you how stupid that decision was. You know, mama didn't raise no fool. But you will never doubt their love for you. You will never for a second think that they don't love you, that they would not willingly lay down their life for your highest possible good. So I think what Paul's calling us to here is kind of a a spiritual mothering, a leading of the family in love. And listen, any good family, it needs responsibility. It needs accountability. But it all has to be built on a foundation of love. And that's what the church should model. Now, y'all, is this hard? Better believe it. Absolutely, it's hard, but it's worth it. Because if the church can do this, we can tell the story of grace and peace. And that's what Paul closes the letter reminding them about, that we serve a God of grace and peace. Verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul reminds us, the Lord of peace gives you peace. Now we have to remember, y'all, peace in the Bible. Peace in the Bible, it's never about, you know, naps and instrumental music and beautiful landscapes, okay? Peace in the Bible is always relational. The war between you and God caused by your sin is over. He holds nothing else against you. You are no longer enemies. You are friends. And he says this peace, it comes to you in all times, in every way. It is a comprehensive peace. And so are they dealing with difficult problems? Yes. Are you dealing with difficult problems? Yes. And there's a peace right in the middle of it. There's a peace that idle people, culture, persecution cannot touch. The Bible calls it a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's supernatural peace. It makes no sense from a human point of view. It defies all explanation, but it can be experienced nonetheless. And the God of peace gives it to you. How? Through grace. Through grace, he says. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made peace by dying for us when we didn't deserve it. And y'all, we didn't even want it. It was all grace. Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own so that no one may boast. When we needed peace with God, not a single one of us earned it. It came wrapped in wrapping paper with a bow and top as a gift. And you know how no nobody earned it? He says it right here. He points it out right here. He says, the Lord be with you all, this whole church. Now, who would the all include? If we'd include the idle people, it would include the ones who are refusing to work. It includes the selfish, the prideful, the disruptive. All need grace and all can receive it. No exceptions. You know, it's, it's interesting. Grace and peace open this letter, he starts with grace and peace, and grace and peace close this letter. He ends with grace 
and peace. And so I think the question for us this morning is, how can we live so that we can tell the story of grace and peace? The story of the God of grace and peace. I think just two things for us this morning. Number one, we tell a story of change. You and I, together, as a church, we tell a story of change. You know, I think there's a reason Paul waits till the end of the second letter to address this head on, and then right afterwards, he ends with a message of grace. Because I have to imagine, again, it's been going on about a year, I have to imagine there's some in the church saying, why do we have to keep putting up with these bozos? Can't we just ask them to move on, go find some other church in town? Paul is reminding them, listen, at one time, you were the bozo. You were the one in need of grace. But grace changed you. Paul says this in Romans. He, he says, listen, do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. Bless even those who curse you. Why? Because you remember that God overcame your evil with his good. God blessed you when you didn't deserve it. You were there. You received grace and it changed you. And listen, men and women, this is why the church, the church can't just be a place where, you know, all the people who are just alike and group of people who enjoy being around each other the most get together and hang out. It ought to be a place where different people, messy people, in-process people can come and experience grace that changes them. Even if it takes discipline, even if it takes a long time. The church ought to be a place where our rough edges are softened. And you know, I've seen that. I've seen that at this church, and you have too. Y'all, I've seen people come, show up here angry and frustrated. And the people of this church just love them, patient with them, you know, correct them occasionally if need be. And, and all that anger, all that bitterness just starts to wash away, and they're changed. I've seen people show up here with complaints and demands. You know, who do you have that's like me? What do you have for me? And then I've seen the people at this church say, not much. We don't have a whole lot. We got an old building that apparently the AC doesn't work very well. Uh, come to find out, we got a concrete floor. If you drop a Yeti, they'll hear it in three counties, okay? That's what we got here. But we sure do love you. We sure would love to get to know you. And that... That love, that grace, that peace, it, it changes a person from inward focus to outward focus. They stop attending church and they start becoming the church. And when we do that, when we're patient with people, we love people, we walk with people, we tell a story of change. People aren't the same as they showed up here. Now that takes hard work. It takes love and patience, even discipline at times. But it tells a story of change. The second thing we do we tell a story of community. We tell a story of community. Have you ever wondered, like, what, how come when we get saved, we don't just immediately get sucked right up to heaven? I mean, right then and there. Wouldn't that, that would be the best thing for me? I mean, immediately. No more sin, no more suffering, none of that. I'm with Jesus, and it's perfect. Why don't we just get to do that? He leaves us here to be the church to a watching world. He's got a mission for us. Until Christ returns, he leaves the church as an embassy, he says, as a storyteller to the world around us. See, y'all, the world out there, they're not going to go read 2 Thessalonians 
and go sit there and read that God is a God of peace. You know what they're going to do? They're going to watch us. They're going to watch this community, and they're going to fill in the blank with what they see. He, God is the Lord of? Are our relationships with one another telling the right story about who God is and about who we wait for? Men and women, this is why we're doing the summer dinner table this summer. And listen, this is why I want everyone to sign up. No exceptions, no excuses, because Paul is teaching us here that the health of our relationships is of supreme importance. It's, off, it's more important than we often realize. And did you know one thing that's universal, I mean almost universal across all times, all places, all cultures, is that the most effective way to communicate peace is to sit down over a meal. Transcends time and culture. As a church, the effectiveness of our witness will never exceed the health of our relationships. Let me say that again. The, the effectiveness of our witness will never exceed the health of our relationships. So this summer, let's invest some time in those relationships. And I'm telling you, I'm convinced, church, if we will do this, it will change us. It will change this church. But you know what that means? If it changes us, it'll change our community. That's what Paul's saying here. How we live tells a story about who we wait for. So let's tell the story of the Lord of grace and peace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.